Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. The Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton Part 1 on the Creature Called Man Chapter 5 Man and Mythologies Part 1 What are here called the gods might almost alternatively be called the daydreams. To compare them to dreams is not to deny that dreams can come true. To compare them to travelers' tales is not to deny that they may be true tales, or at least truthful tales. In truth, they are the sort of tales the traveler tells to himself. All this mythological business belongs to the poetical part of men. It seems strangely forgotten nowadays that a myth is a work of imagination, and therefore a work of art. It needs a poet to make it. It needs a poet to criticize it. There are more poets than non-poets in the world, as is proved by the popular origin of such legends. But for some reason I have never heard explained, it is only the minority of unpoetical people who are allowed to write critical studies of these popular poems. We do not submit a sonnet to a mathematician, or a song to a calculating boy, but we do indulge the equally fantastic idea that folklore can be treated as a science. Unless these things are appreciated artistically, they are not appreciated at all. When the professor is told by the barbarian that once there was nothing except a great feathered serpent, unless the learned man feels a thrill and a half-temptation to wish it were true, he is no judge of such things at all. When he is assured, on the best Red Indian authority, that a primitive hero carried the sun and moon and stars in a box, unless he claps his hands and almost kicks his legs as a child would at such a charming fancy, he knows nothing about the matter. This test is not nonsensical. Primitive children and barbaric children do laugh and kick like other children. And we must have a certain simplicity to repicture the childhood of the world. When Hiawatha was told by his nurse that a warrior threw his grandmother up to the moon, he laughed like any English child told by his nurse that a cow jumped over the moon. The child sees the joke, as well as most men, and better than some scientific men. But the ultimate test, even of the fantastic, is the appropriateness of the inappropriate. And the test must appear merely arbitrary, because it is merely artistic. If any student tells me that the infant Hiawatha only laughed out of respect for the tribal custom of sacrificing the aged to economical housekeeping, I say he did not. If any scholar tells me that the cow jumped over the moon only because a heifer was sacrificed to Diana, I answer that it did not. It happened because it is obviously the right thing for a cow to jump over the moon. Mythology is a lost art. One of the few arts that really are lost. But it is an art. The horned moon and the horned moon calf make a harmonious and almost a quiet pattern. And throwing your grandmother into the sky is not good behavior, but it is perfectly good taste. Thus, scientists seldom understand, as artists understand, that one branch of the beautiful is the ugly, 
they seldom allow for the legitimate liberty of the grotesque, and they will dismiss a savage myth as merely coarse and clumsy, and an evidence of degradation, because it has not all the beauty of the herald Mercury new-lighted on a heaven-kissing hill, when it really has the beauty of the mock turtle of the Mad Hatter. It is the supreme proof of a man being prosaic, that he always insists on poetry being poetical. Sometimes the humor is in the very subject, as well as in the style of the fable. The Australian Aborigines, regarded as the rudest of savages, have a story about a giant frog who had swallowed the sea and all the waters of the world, and who was only forced to spill them by being made to laugh. All the animals with all their antics passed before him, and like Queen Victoria, he was not amused. He collapsed at last before an eel who stood delicately balanced on the tip of its tail, doubtless with a rather desperate dignity. Any amount of fine fantastic literature might be made out of that fable. There is philosophy in that vision of the dry world before the beatific deluge of laughter. There is imagination in the mountainous monster erupting like an aqueous volcano. There is plenty of fun in the thought of his goggling visage as the pelican or the penguin passed by. Anyhow, the frog laughed. But the folklore student remains grave. Moreover, even where the fables are inferior as art, they cannot be properly judged by science, still less properly judged as science. Some myths are very crude and queer, like the early drawings of children. But the child is trying to draw. It is nonetheless an error to treat his drawing as if it were a diagram, or intended to be a diagram. The student cannot make a scientific statement about the savage, because the savage is not making a scientific statement about the world. He is saying something quite different, what might be called the gossip of the gods. We may say, if we like, that it is believed before there is time to examine it. It would be truer to say it is accepted before there is time to believe it. I confess I doubt the whole theory of the dissemination of myths, or, as it commonly is, of one myth. It is true that something in our nature and conditions makes many stories similar, but each of them may be original. One man does not borrow the story from the other man, though he may tell it from the same motive as the other man. It would be easy to apply the whole argument about legend to literature, and turn it into a vulgar monomania of plagiarism. I would undertake to trace a notion like that of the Golden Bough, through individual modern novels as easily as through communal and antiquated myths. I would undertake to find something like a bunch of flowers figuring again and again from the fatal bouquet of Becky Sharp to the spray of roses sent by the princess of Ruritania. But though these flowers may spring from the same soil, it is not the same faded flower that is flung from hand to hand. Those flowers are always fresh. The true origin of all the myths has been discovered much too often. There are too many keys to mythology, as there are too many cryptograms in Shakespeare. Everything is phallic. Everything is totemistic. Everything is seed time and harvest. Everything is ghosts and grave offerings. Everything is the golden bough of sacrifice. Everything is the sun and moon. Everything is everything. Every folklore student who knew a little more than his own monomania 
Every man of wider reading and critical culture like Andrew Lang has practically confessed that the bewilderment of these things left his brain spinning. Yet the whole trouble comes from a man trying to look at these stories from the outside, as if they were scientific objects. He has only to look at them from the inside and ask himself how he would begin a story. A story may start with anything, and go anywhere. It may start with a bird without the bird being a totem. It may start with the sun without being a solar myth. It is said there are only ten plots in the world, and there will certainly be common and recurrent elements. Set ten thousand children talking at once, and telling taradiddles about what they did in the wood, and it will not be hard to find parallels suggesting sun worship or animal worship. Some of the stories may be pretty, and some silly, and some perhaps dirty, but they can only be judged as stories. In the modern dialect, they can only be judged aesthetically. It is strange that aesthetics, or mere feeling, which is now allowed to usurp where it has no rights at all, to wreck reason with pragmatism and morals with anarchy, is apparently not allowed to give purely aesthetic judgment on what is obviously a purely aesthetic question. We may be fanciful about everything except fairy tales. Now the first fact is that the most simple people have the most subtle ideas. Everybody ought to know that, for everybody has been a child. Ignorant as a child is, he knows more than he can say, and feels not only atmospheres but fine shades. And in this matter there are several fine shades. Nobody understands it who has not had what can only be called the ache of the artist to find some sense and some story in the beautiful things he sees, his hunger for secrets and his anger at any tower or tree escaping with its tail untold. He feels that nothing is perfect unless it is personal. Without that, the blind, unconscious beauty of the world stands in its garden like a headless statue. One need only be a very minor poet to have wrestled with the tower or the tree until it spoke like a titan or a dryad. It is often said that pagan mythology was a personification of the powers of nature. The phrase is true in a sense, but it is very unsatisfactory because it implies that the forces are abstractions and the personification is artificial. Myths are not allegories. Natural powers are not, in this case, abstractions. It is not as if there were a god of gravitation. There may be a genius of the waterfall, but not of mere falling, even less than of mere water. The impersonation is not of something impersonal. The point is that the personality perfects the water with significance. Father Christmas is not an allegory of snow and holly. He is not merely the stuff called snow afterwards artificially given a human form, like a snowman. He is something that gives a new meaning to the white world and the evergreens, so that snow itself seems to be warm rather than cold. The test, therefore, is purely imaginative. But imaginative does not mean imaginary. It does not follow that it is all what the moderns call subjective, when they mean false. Every true artist does feel, consciously or unconsciously, that he is touching transcendental truths, that his images are shadows of things seen through the veil. In other words, the natural mystic does know that there is something there, something behind the clouds or within the trees, but he believes that the pursuit of beauty is the way to find it that imagination is a sort of incantation that can call it up, 
Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, twill be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>